Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Lucy Schiller. Lucy, hello, and how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so pleased that you said I'm doing well. (laughs) When I moved to the United States, just after Bill Clinton became president, he was the first person I'd ever heard who used the term good when he meant well. And I've discovered that this has become a norm everywhere. And it troubles me. (laughs) There's a great little Wittgenstein thing where Wittgenstein gets very upset about people referring to somebody as a good footballer when they mean good at something in addition to playing football. You know what I mean? Anyway, enough of that. I'm not here to talk about Wittgenstein. I'm here to learn more about you and what you're writing and have written, much of which I've read, I've been, I'm lucky enough to say. So can you tell us um, what's on your mind at the moment, what you're thinking about, what's happening for Lucy Schiller? Sure. And by the way, happy to talk about Wittgenstein. Um, I think you may have more to contribute on that front than I do. But um, yeah, so I, I'm a nonfiction writer, as you know. Um, I... <laughs> As a nonfiction writer who uh, teaches nonfiction writing, um, I have to kind of do a lot of explaining to people what nonfiction writing is and how it could possibly be creative. So um, my semester starts actually tomorrow. Uh, and so I'm these questions are on my mind. You know, how am I going to explain it this time? What has changed since the last time? Um, what is an essay? A lot of people have um, pretty clear, but also sometimes... Um, particular understandings of that word. And I think a lot and I'm thinking a lot right now about um, how to challenge some kind of uh, assumptions that people have around essays, around nonfiction writing, around creativity and truth. Um, And then I'm also teaching a class on um, digression this semester. And so I'm thinking a lot about stepping away from narrative and when and why we do that and um, the kind of artistic and political importance of doing that at times. Um, And yeah, so that's kind of what's on my mind. I I fear my answer might be um, particularly grounded in the the upcoming semester, but um, that's what's racing around up there. And where will you be teaching? Um, I teach at Texas Tech University in, in Lubbock. Texas. Yeah. Home of Buddy Holly. Am I right in saying home, that? Home of Buddy Holly. And also, um, it turns out so many other really fascinating, talented musicians. Um, uh, Butch Hancock of the Flatlanders, actually all of the Flatlanders. Um, Terry Allen, who I don't know if you know or listen to, but he's immensely, mind-blowingly amazing. And um, he's kind of like uh, art art country pioneer like he his song his songs are often about art and kind of um the culture around contemporary art he's also a sculptor and a painter um but created this amazing album in 1979 called um Lubbock on everything Uh, (laughs) it's all about Lubbock and art making in Lubbock and I guess I was reading an interest this is a digression by the way so in keeping with your other class, it's coming. Yeah, exactly. But um, I was reading an interview with him and he said, 
uh, that he originally made this album, Lubbock on Everything, as kind of an exorcism or like um, all of his songs were about, he thought at the time, um, not really enjoying his background in Lubbock, his childhood in Lubbock. And then he realized through the process of recording the album that it was actually like a love letter to um, to this place. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting place and um, some stuff that's actually pretty thoughtful has been written about um, the preponderance of artists and art makers and writers and musicians that have come from um, come from Lubbock. So it's it's actually um, pretty fertile ground historically. Buddy Holly, Terry Allen, everyone in between. And the catchment area for your students is Texas in general? Yes, yeah, Texas in general. A lot of them, um, most of them come from Texas. Yeah, all over. Hmm. Yeah. So they might be from fairly big places like Houston, Austin, San Antonio, but they might be from little villages yeah little towns yeah um i've definitely had um some students from from smaller places and a lot of students from the larger cities and it's this really interesting pretty lovely actually blend of um Mm. experiences and perspectives so Mm, yeah great now in terms of the business of what's creativity why would you teach creative writing what is non-fiction writing you were saying that you have you had some answers to these, or you have some each year or each mm-hmm. season, but you'll think of giving different ones this year, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's um it's a question that <laughs> or it's a series of questions that um I'm very tired of in some ways because I feel like people are have repeatedly kind of um made a performance almost over um arguing about um, you know, how can creative nonfiction be truthful or how can creative nonfiction be creative? And there's, that's a very, it's a long kind of history there. Um, even before like Truman Capote in Cold Blood, mm-hmm. um, we had like James Ag, you know, writing, um, let us now praise famous men and his really wild, bizarre reported, but also wildly lyrical manuscript being, um, being rejected by his publisher and then um, posthumously being really appreciated. And so, you know, I think um, it's what I'm trying to get at with that is that it's this series of questions about truth and creativity and what the relationship is between the two um, that have been going on for a really long time and that I think are kind of tired in some ways. Um, But at the same time, I think, um, nonfiction and creative nonfiction still feels somehow like a very new genre. Um, And so there's kind of an opportunity, particularly when you're working with people who have not written in this genre before or, or thought that they've read that much of it, though I think they often have actually read more of it than they think they have, um, especially with the internet, that there's an opportunity there to, um, to work through that question or a new iteration of that question with them. Um, So yeah, it's important to me, um, I guess because in some ways, like the deeper I get into this genre as a writer, the more confused I am about what I'm doing. <laughs> um, there's a certain clarity, I think, that comes with establishing like a trajectory as a writer and you have particular projects that you know you want to do and that are going to take years to complete um, or a long time to complete. But then there's also this sense of like 
getting lost in um, the possibilities and the the edges kind of blurring a little bit, which is not to say I'm tempted to become a fabulist, but like more just to say that um, there's a lot of stuff I think in nonfiction that hasn't yet been accomplished and that hasn't yet been tested or explored. And that's one reason I'm interested in digression and escaping from narrative in general is because I think um, I'm increasingly interested in non-coherence, to be totally honest. Um, I'm really interested in how to write things that aren't distillable to a hashtag on the internet. Um, I'm interested in what the internet has done to our expectations of nonfiction um, and what like distillation in general, how it can be kind of um, skirted or uh, resisted. Yeah. I'm thinking of Thomas Keneally, the Australian Catholic Irish novelist in inverted commas who wrote Schindler's Ark, which became the basis for Schindler's list, the film, and he called it a documentary fiction. Love that. When it won prizes as a novel, because it included in the preface the fact that he had used stories from many survivors, other novelists complained that it wasn't really fiction. And historians claimed that it wasn't accurate. Yeah. He was, caught, he was caught between these stools. And I was on a round table about the film a couple of years after it was released. And I talked about the relativity of truth, let's say, and these different theories of it correspondence theories and as you say coherent theories <laughs> there was a guy there who got up and I was the only non-Jewish person in the entire room and uh, because it was a sort of Jewish event right and uh, got up and said uh, you limeys meaning the British uh, didn't try to save any of us now you get up and say none of it really happened oh, wow. yeah and this was not good and I said that wasn't my implication. Afterwards, several survivors and survivors' children came up to me and said, we or they have never told the full truth. We, did, we didn't tell the full truth when Spielberg's Yale Project interviewed us because we still think someone will come and get us. So thank you for saying truth is relative. It was amazing. And they hated this guy, <laughs> criticized me. And obviously, this was a, a this is a serious sort of sharp end of these issues. Um, yeah. uh, but getting back to the the anecdote about Keneally, um, documentary fictions is also a term used to describe the documentary films of Frederick Wiseman, probably the greatest documentarist, certainly in the English speaking world, uh, and. I, I think that there is something special and magical and important about that stuff. And I think back to some of the debates about realist texts and how reconstructions of the past that have foibles in them may be more accurate than 
reconstructions that don't have foibles but don't explain anything at all much. Yeah, I I think that's so interesting and also so important that um, there's something in some ways um, there's an attempt at at honesty <laughs> um, in kind of showing your hand as a writer or as a documentarian and saying um, some version of yes, I'm working with the truth but the truth is a very large undistillable at times um, uh, multi-perspectival thing Mm. that I personally also have my own relationship to, even if I did not go through the events that I'm documenting or describing after the fact to not be present in some ways, which is historically what people think of when they think of a documentary is that it's, you know, objective um and that there isn't an authorial hand of one kind or another and there are no kind of foibles interjecting or moments of personal reflection um is a strong way to make a documentary but it's also um sometimes it can be a little bit i think deceptive um to kind of disappear as an authorial voice um so i i really uh, relate to what to what you're saying and um you know i I work in kind of more journalistic modes alongside of more creative modes. And um, this is kind of this like constant tension for me is navigating um, basically kind of like the expectations, both of the um, outlet where I may be publishing something um, and then also my readers expectations and then also my own foibles, my own uh, desires as a writer. So I think there there are, I've realized for myself, you know, many strategies that I can take to kind of show my hand to remind a reader um, that this is not just kind of written by, for instance, like AI, but it's written by a one particular human <laughs> um, with her own kind of um, eye and her own perspective. But um, that's pretty important to me, actually, particularly in the more journalistic work that I do. Yeah. So... When the students are scratching their heads tomorrow or later in the week, yeah, and you're scratching yours, but you're smiling, whereas they're frowning, <laughs> maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> because you're wanting to be welcoming and so on, which is what I try to do in these situations, I know. Do you give them examples, perhaps from your own prose, perhaps from others, to exemplify some of these nuances, uh, generic distinctions, which may be problematic and partial, but are hard to get away from. A bit like, for example, you know, when we write a CV or a job application, we try to show there's a constant thread of logic through our lives. Whereas at a dinner party, we say, afraid not, not really. Yeah, <laughs> that's such a good way to put it. Um, yeah, I give them examples. Uh, one text that I I really love to teach, for some reason I'm drawn to <laughs> teaching things that um, I kind of know through experience at this point or suspect that students are going to um, dislike. And then over the course of our class discussion, grow to be actually kind of interested in it, even if they don't necessarily like it. They may have some sense of um, engagement with it that they didn't have initially. So one of those texts is um, 
Street Haunting, this essay published in, I think, 1930 by Virginia Woolf. And um, in it, she basically dissolves her body. There's no personal pronoun at all throughout this very long, um, long essay. And it's beautifully written, of course. She's a beautiful writer, but she um, <clears throat> she goes, she says, in search of a lead pencil. That's kind of um, the opening paragraph, but she's still not using that personal pronoun. And then she's basically floating through the streets of London at nighttime, um, looking into windows and kind of engaging with other people's experiences and digressing into thinking about um, the importance to her of reading and the way that reading allows her to inhabit other people's realities and other, and also just other realities in general. She says something like, the self is this actually like beautifully blended, variegated thing that's full of all sorts of different elements and people and experiences. And how can I be on a balcony in June over Paris and also simultaneously in my flat in London in January? How can I be old and how can I be young at the same time? So she she kind of uses this um this uh, particular excuse to go get a lead pencil to walk through the streets of London as almost like a, a ghostly spectral collection of molecules, really, not a particular person. And students are totally, sometimes anyway, um, disturbed by it. Like it's it's a difficult text in some ways, not just because it's written almost a hundred years ago, but also because it's not what we think of when we think of a personal essay when we think of a personal essay, we think of like it being rooted by um, the personal pronoun. But here we have someone who's actually kind of making an argument through disavowing the personal pronoun that she's everywhere and everything at the same time. Um, and when you put it like that, when I put it like that, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but um, that's a text that I find uh, students really start to take to. Um, and we talk a lot about um, how they might write things in different modes that are technically nonfiction, but aren't necessarily anchored solely by personal experience or solely by the personal pronoun. And what are kind of the um, <clears throat> opportunities there and also maybe the dangers when you're looking at, you know, writing about others' experiences or um, considering lives other than your own, um, how present do you need to be, you know? So that's, you know, one particular text that people, um, I think kind of uh, are helped by in some ways with these much larger questions around documentary and the responsibility of kind of um, the writer to convey their own presence or not. Um, I could keep going, but that's kind of, that's the one that came to mind. I must admit I haven't read it though. At the moment I'm writing about a Virginia Woolf essay. Oh, really? About being a snob. Ooh, I, I've i read that one way back in the day, but I, I don't remember it. So what is she saying about being a snob? Well, and <laughs> It's not a distinguished essay in any sense. Yeah. I think it was read at a salon. And what I believe she's saying, and there is a lot of the use of the word I in it, as mm -hmm. in personal first-person pronoun, is that she's a snob because... She wants to use connections, real or imagined, to improve her standing. So I'm trying to write about snobbery at the moment. And one of the things I realize is that some, at some point between when she was writing 
in the 30s and the 50s or 60s, it shifted from being an aspirational move to being an elitist one. Mm. There's something that happens. I don't know why or when, but it does because uh, she's recognizably with Thackeray in this group of people for whom snobbery is an aspirational attempt to join some kind of elite. With her, it's about how can she go out to dinner with famous men in her (laughs) version. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Interesting. Yeah, I should give that a second read. It. This is. Um, <laughs> I'm not I, so sure you sh- anyone <laughs> should really, unless they're very dedicated. But anyway. <laughs> well, it reminds me. I love the um, question of snobbery in a lot of ways because um, one of my favorite books of all time has a lot to do with snobbery <laughs> and with taste and um, what exactly taste is. I don't know if you've read. I'm sure it's come across your radar, but. Um, Carl Wilson is the name of the writer. And he wrote this book about Celine Dion, who he hates. He hates the sound of Celine Dion's voice. But he says, how can it be that I hate Celine Dion's voice so much? And she's like the number one or number two global hit maker. So many other people like her. And it's, is it elitist of me, you know, or snobby of me to hold this opinion? And maybe I should try to figure out why people like her so much what does she represent that i find distasteful and he goes into it's actually he's a canadian writer she's obviously canadian as well um and it ends up going into this like really fascinating history of um uh quebec and um kind of class in uh in quebec and um the idea of schmaltz and where that where that term comes from and how to him, Celine Dion is this very kind of like schmaltzy, cheesy, gooey, um, aggressively embarrassing and demonstrative singer, basically. Um, but how she came from a particular history in, in Quebec that um, makes her beloved, not just there, but um, to basically kind of like working class people across across the globe. Um, it's a cool book. It's an odd wow, one, though. that's so interesting. That's I wish I could remember the name. Well, I'm sure people can find it if they look hard enough in the their favorite local bookstore, which of course doesn't exist. I know. So yeah. um getting back to the journalism genre, how do you identify something as journalism versus nonfiction writing? I'm sorry to get you into the sort of binarism I know you're trying to get away from, but no, I ask good. this because I don't know the answer. <laughs> well, before I start upon my attempted answer, I'll just say I don't know the answer either. Um, but I can try to think it through, I guess. I think that I think that nonfiction as a genre encompasses journalism, so it's a little bit like the pumpkin squash situation, squash pumpkin. <laughs> And the square and the rectangle situation. And um, so I think, you know, journalism sits somewhere within nonfiction. Nonfiction is vast and can encompass everything from um, an op-ed to um, a prose poem (laughs) somehow. I think that the term nonfiction, and this has been said by other people, but the term nonfiction is 
pretty useless, honestly, um, in part because it's it encompasses so much. Um, and so it's less of like a binary um, than it is, I think, trying to figure out where the edges of, of nonfiction are and maybe where the edges of journalism are. Um, so journalism for me, which I, I do, I practice, though I think of um, the stuff I do as maybe more literary journalism, whatever that term is supposed to mean. But um, I think journalism is often crafted more, um, more with an eye towards that supposed objectivity, less of an interrogation on the page anyway of that objectivity. There's less room for that um, <clears throat> for all sorts of reasons. And I think that also strangely in journalism behind the scenes, there's a lot more often um, uh, editorial interest kind of at play. So I think of literary nonfiction and all of the different pieces of nonfiction that fall outside of journalism as being um, more of kind of a artistic expression um, as being kind of like, so one definition of the essay as a form, which I think a lot about is that it's a mind on the page. Um, with journalism, there's a few minds on the page <laughs> there. Um, and often they're kind of um, editing one another behind the scenes in ways that a reader doesn't really get access to. So that's not to say that um, literary nonfiction isn't edited or that there aren't multiple voices kind of working to shape it. But um, the idea, as I see it anyway, is that it's um, attempting to kind of convey one particular perspective, whether or not there's kind of a personal pronoun there. Um, and with journalism, um, it seems as if it's more interested in kind of um, uh, presenting truth in a, a less mind formed <laughs> on the page way, if that makes sense. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I am always interested when people use the term we in writing, as in W-E, yeah. especially in a certain kind of literary criticism. We are astounded when we read blah, 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 we this. And I think, gee, I've read it. I'm not. Who is this we? <laughs> Who are you talking about? Yeah, I know there's a writer, um, Teju Cole, who I really like, who he writes a lot of, he writes actually kind of docu-fiction in some ways, but also kind of art criticism, stuff that isn't necessarily easily distilled. Um, and he he's just an amazing writer, but he he's made a similar point. He said at some point, and I'm going to misquote him, but I remember him mm. saying something like, um, you know, watch watch that we. <laughs> Who are you talking about when you say we? And that that rankles me as well. I find it kind of immediately a turnoff as a reader. I'm like, mm -hmm. um, it feels to me, and I'm always trying to dodge it, though it's it's hard in, for some reason increasingly to dodge for me. I'm not sure why, but it seems like it's almost a strategy of fatigue in some ways or a shortcut. Um, I think it is a way for writers to make a point really quickly um, that seems like it's true, but upon kind of like deeper consideration or maybe it strikes the wrong reader like you uh, in a particular way. And they say, mm, no, it doesn't apply. So 
It's yeah. what ethnomethodologists and conversation analysts would call in their ugly prose a membership categorization device mm. to yeah. membership people. And yeah. it was, it, it seems a little less common in literary criticism than it was, but it's still there in lots of journalism. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily we, but, you know, when it's uh, the American people, for example, yeah. astonishing right. claims. Maybe. Or the, the Russians or, you or, know. Whatever it may be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Lucy, I wonder if we could turn a little bit in a more specific way to your work. I've read it in all sorts of places. I think I'm right in saying from Counterpunch to The New Yorker. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't know how many people have published in Counterpunch and The New Yorker. I'm guessing you're the only one or one of a very small crew. Yeah. For some people who may not know the U.S. publishing scene, focus on on that antinomy for the moment. What's Counterpunch and what's The New Yorker and what's the difference? Oh, my God. Yeah, the very distinct different publications. Um, Let's start with The New Yorker, which maybe um, outsiders to the U.S. publishing scene probably have some idea of. Uh, Yeah, The New Yorker is a storied publication. I'm sorry if you can hear my dog outside of my door. Um, The New Yorker is a storied publication that began kind of, um, I think, kind of post-war in the U.S. and has historically been a home to all sorts of writers, but kind of started out with people who were interested in kind of this burgeoning field of literary journalism, writing true stories in really long, um, long, uh, somewhat pretty creative ways. And now is understood to be, um, so skipping ahead like 50 plus years, now is understood to be kind of the most prestigious full of cachet of all kinds, um, pretty commercial magazine um, that publishes everything from um, the occasional personal personal essay to restaurant reviews of top-notch, pretty fancy restaurants in New York usually, to um, uh, I guess kind of longer form journalism um, and literary journalism. Then Counterpunch, is I think maybe better understood as like um, a really scrappy, um, also storied in its way, um, magazine, both, I think they've phased out the print. Now it's online, but it it used to have a print component um, that takes all sorts of voices, particularly kind of left-wing perspectives um, into into its folds like it's um it kind of i think is home to sometimes some pretty um overt overtly disagreeing kind of attitudes and perspectives it has a pretty sharp um sharp eye towards i think like imperialism towards commercialism of everything commodification of everything um environmentalist issues um it's uh I forget what exactly their slogan is, but I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't something like, you know, we take no prisoners or something like that. Um, I think it was started by Jeffrey Sinclair and um, Alexander Coburn. Is that right? Uh, back in the day. So 
not really that far back in the day, but not as far back as the New Yorker, but pretty, um, pretty different uh, magazines. Yeah. New Yorker would be more of a sort of not even liberal wing of a democratic party. Yeah. A, a sort of comfortable so. urban, vaguely liberal set of attitudes probably. Yeah. yeah. It's fair to I say. Yeah. Cartoons also famous. James Thurber was mm-hmm. one of the regular cartoonists. When I was a child, my parents would wake me up from my slumbers when they were sitting up drinking and reading The New Yorker to show me a cartoon that they thought was particularly funny. And I was eight or nine and I just wanted to sleep. <laughs> so I had a prejudice against it. <laughs> well, I remember reading The New Yorker in uh the various bathrooms of my friend's parents growing up and just being like, how do I get away from this like really boring dinner conversation to, you know, an eight-year-old, I'll go to the bathroom. I'll read the New Yorker. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I guess I was, you were escaping something. I was being roused from something enjoyable. So different (laughs) introductions. Yeah. Uh, And maybe you could run through a, uh, some of the other outlets where you've published and some of the sorts of things you've written about, would that be sure. okay? Because yeah, you've done fine. everything from interviews to opinion pieces. You've done, you know, accounts of people's lives who are not famous. Yeah. Uh, you have looked at major public policy issues. It's really a raft of different themes. I think it's fair to say. Wow. Well, that makes me feel very grateful. Thank you for your summary of my work. That's exactly what I'm trying to do is kind of um, stay doing everything at the same time all at once. Um, Yeah, so I've published uh, personal essays in Counterpunch um, that also had kind of a political bent. I've published, um, (laughs) yeah, I've published two separate kind of little profiles in the New Yorker online. One of a radical bookstore in San Francisco that I really love called Valerium Books. This is a, this is basically sponsored content. I'm saying the name aloud so that listeners go visit the website. Um, they have all sorts of amazing, amazing artifacts. Can you spell it out so that they... Yes, gladly. Bolarium, B-O-L-E-R-I-U-M. Bolarium Books in San Francisco. Um, and... Uh, uh, the other thing I did at the New Yorker there was a little profile of a musician named Arthur Russell, who has since become like wildly famous, um, sampled even by Kanye West. And, uh, you know, I hear his music now everywhere, not because of me, but because he um, has really taken on posthumously um, a, a real kind of like commercially viable life, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've published... Um, a few articles in the Columbia Journalism Review, um, which have actually been, I never expected to be publishing there and um, learning how to write for that particular outlet about some of the things that I've written about um, there have been, has been like incredibly formative to me in ways that I did not expect. So I wrote namely this piece about, um, <laughs> about, um, an evangelical man named Dave Ramsey, who's like one of the most popular radio hosts in the U.S. Um, and his radio show is about um, personal debt and ways to kind of um, 
ways to move through debt and to pay it off over time. And it's sometimes kind of embedded um, into kind of a, a larger moral structure that he espouses. And um, so I wrote about him and also his connections or his show's connections to um, the platform that he um, uses, which is uh, iHeartRadio, previously known as Clear Channel, and the kind of history of debt um, in radio consolidation over the years in uh, the U.S. So it was this very complicated story about which I knew very little but um, initially, but was really interesting to write. Um, I've written a few other things for CJR and I'm working on one right now or supposed to be working on one right now. Um, I'm not, but will shortly. Um, yeah, I've written more overtly literary stuff in um, literary journals like the Iowa Review and West Branch and kind of these smaller kind of university run publications that um, I've experienced less kind of intense editing there. And so they kind of can be more places and opportunities for me to just experiment in some ways um, and also sometimes be more personal or be more on the page or be more zany. You know, sometimes when I'm writing more journalistic stuff, I'm like, I would love to write this paragraph, but I know, I just know that it's going to get cut. And so I'm not even going to waste my time. Um, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Yeah. Those are kind of the main ones that come to mind. Some of us lament the increasing absence of editorial interventions into things we write sounds like that's not <laughs> your experience. I have a, it, it is my experience in some ways. I um, really value the work that an editor does and get a lot out of it and appreciate it very much and have, for instance, like a very meaningful and close relationship with my editor at CJR, who sends me ideas sometimes for stories that um, she wonders if I might write. And it feels really special and and pretty rare, honestly, to have a working relationship with an editor like that, who understands who you are as a writer and encourages you and also challenges you a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I really appreciate uh editors i do think that how do i say this it's not because it's a provocative point necessarily it's just because i'm not sure that it's true but i'm i'm trying to figure it out like i think that um as i was saying before with regards to the vastness of creative nonfiction and literary nonfiction i think that there's so much room to do, to be doing so much wild exciting artistic challenging sometimes incomprehensible stuff that an editor who's being paid by a publication that they want to stay on at probably isn't necessarily going to be um compelled to encourage so um basically you know i i think that um when i'm doing maybe more overtly literary stuff and i have to think about how it's going to be published online even if it's not going to be published at um, a super prestigious outlet or something. I still think that the way that the internet works, the way that SEO works, the way that um, uh, websites make money, um, I think that 
those priorities sometimes unfortunately infiltrate my work and they form they serve as their own kind of editor in a way where it's like how do I write something that's incomprehensible and get it published I I believe in that you know I want some I want to be able to write something that isn't necessarily wildly comprehensible um, and get it published but I think that many editors um, are less interested in that perhaps than uh, I wish they were (laughs) Understood. So you've just said that your editor at Columbia Journalism Review is terrific and comes up with ideas for you. Yeah. Uh, In general, where do your topics come from? Does something just strike you out there in the culture, as it were? I, I get the impression from some of what you write that you like to walk around and look at things and meet people and that those experiences may provide some inspiration. Oh yeah. Big time. I love um, wandering around. I believe in a way that feels kind of um, uh, almost like a manifesto in a way in for myself, I believe in the idea of just being open to seeing where a story goes without trying to over-determine it or understand what it's about from Mm -hmm. the get-go. Same for just experience in general. I think um, that's something I try to live by is um, not having a a kind of like CV, as you were saying, narrative to my days or my life. Um, I want the dinner party version where I say, I don't know what the hell is going to happen. Like, we'll see. Um, But anyway, so... Yeah, I think um, staying open to walking around and or driving around and um, finding stories as they come to me is a big part of it. I think um, I I like to read a lot and I find new ways of thinking about kind of half-formed story ideas that are already bubbling around in the back of my mind in all sorts of texts um, from across time and space. Um In general, I think if there's like one way to understand the kind of glue that um, binds some of my stories or some of my ideas together, it's often um, it's often that they are people or ideas or stories or places that are important, but aren't known by the mainstream. Um, And whether that is that they're like forgotten, which is a a word I have my own issues with. um, Because again, it's kind of like that we who does the forgetting, not everyone, they're not forgotten by everyone. Um, But yeah, so if they're forgotten, quote unquote, if they're um, overlooked, perhaps intentionally, um, if they are, I'm interested in kind of stories about um, people who, who hold on to knowledge, uh, despite kind of a current that's trying to take that knowledge out or use it in a different way um, or gloss over it or whatever. So I'm interested, I guess, in kind of like the memory keepers and the lantern bearers and the uh, strange people who are living in ways that aren't, not strange people, but the people who are living in ways that are um, not easily understood or commodified by the mainstream. Perhaps outside the formal economy of knowledge in the informal sector. Yeah, exactly. Wonderful, wonderful. 
So, Lucy, I've got a couple more questions for you, Prof, if I may. And yeah. then I'd like to ask you to add or subtract anything okay. along the road that we've cut out for ourselves, if that's okay. Sure. So my second last question mm -hmm. is to ask about your formation, how you came to be Lucy Schiller, writer and prof. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is, not, this is <laughs> not the job interview. This is the dinner party. Okay. Question. Yeah. I, you know, um, there's one answer that I'm trying not to like immediately go towards here. So I'm trying to think about a more nuanced way to think about it. But um, yeah, you know, I think. Um, I think spending a lot of time alone as a kid with books was really important to me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. My grandfather, I think, was really important to me, Herb. Um, he, every Sunday, we would go over to his house in San Diego, and um, he had spent the entire week thinking of the latest chapter in this never-ending, ongoing installment of stories that he was going to tell me about um, his protagonist was named Lucinda and, you know, my name is Lucy. So it often felt like docufiction, basically. Um, like I, I was being kind of um, noticed and written about uh, in a way by someone who saw me in, as who I was um, in a very particular way. So that felt like its own kind of literary encouragement in an early at an early stage. Um, I think um, I've been thinking a lot about this for various reasons, but I think um, a lot of writers grow up in one way or another feeling pretty different from their surroundings, um, feeling like pretty, it can take different forms. You know, some people become depressives because of that feeling and um, feel very isolated. And other people, I think, just feel like they're just kind of perpetually on the outskirts looking in and are curious about it. Um, I definitely felt that way growing up in Southern California. I, I'm not a big swimmer. <laughs> I never like really enjoyed going to the beach. The mall culture there is intense. Um, driving culture, really intense. Um, you know, I grew up in a family of intellectuals. I was really lucky to grow up in that way, but often felt... Um, like I wasn't totally um, an academic, I guess, in training in the ways that like my parents were, but also I, I wasn't, um, I wasn't like a mall rat. So what was I, you know? Um, so I think that was kind of um, important to me was like flitting along the outskirts of all sorts of things as a kid, um, spending a lot of time outside, feeling like I didn't quite fit in, reading a lot, having close intellectual relationships with people I admired. Um, yeah. And then um, I think just growing up after that, um, I spent some time, <laughs> this was, this is a strange thing to bring up, but it was weirdly formative. I like um, had a job out of college writing scavenger hunts um, in cities all across the United States for corporate team, team building events. Um, Pardon and... me, Robert. 
I'm glad you got the money, but pardon me while I barf on a spoon. Oh, yeah. Why can't these people learn to operate politely in the actual (laughs) office? Why do they construct analytic philosophy games? Anyway, sorry. No, I know. No, you're right. I mean, yeah, no, it was um, a big part of, but my job was literally distilling um, (laughs) art and history into like what we call tricky, witty questions um, for burned, burned out people from across all sorts of industries. And uh, it was, yeah, you said barf on a spoon. There was an element, major element of that. There was also like, for a 23-year-old <laughs> traveling the country, kind of seeing all these cities and museums and historic neighborhoods, and then having to kind of interact with them alone, because I did, it was a very small company, and I was the only kind of like um, staff writer. And so I did a lot of yeah. traveling alone um, and looking at things and learning. I think I'd taken like one art history class, but now I was looking at these amazing paintings and um, things I never would have seen otherwise. So it was this weird, weird job, and it, it got me to think um, in all sorts of new ways. So I think that was pretty formative for me as well as a writer. I should say I used to be a speechwriter, <laughs> and I wrote speeches for people who were calling for things like deregulation of the economy, the opening up of education away from notions of citizenship and towards competitive consumerism. So. I'm not being moralistic. <laughs> no, I. And, it's like I, you know. I did it at the same age, just about actually, but without the the boldness that you did, you had, and without the exciting trajectory. So when I say bath on a spoon, I bathed on my own spoon many times, writing this stuff, but I learned a lot from doing it. So that gets me actually to my next question. I'm not going to say the B A R F. If that's how you spell that word again. But thinking about you as a 23-year-old going around the country into places that you're unfamiliar with, how does how do things like gender and other questions of social identity uh, flow into your research and writing, or do they as you see it? Because I'm thinking young woman going around the country, not the typical Bildungsroman in its <laughs> gendered form, is it? No. Well, I think um, in many ways, I've just personally speaking, I've been like very oblivious towards things like gender for most of my life, while also um, weirdly acutely sensitive to it when it rears its head, which is another way to say like I forget, I guess, that and have often forgotten or just not realized that people might view me as a young, vulnerable female creature um that's not really like how i think of myself and so when it um has occurred and it's actually to be honest it's occurred quite frequently over the course of my life that i've kind of like butted into particular expectations for me um as a young woman um <laughs> i've been totally nonplussed like i guess i've just felt confused and then the next emotion after confusion is um deep offense basically (laughs) like I feel um I felt um very frustrated by um those particular expectations that I don't Mm -hmm. necessarily um 
think of myself as uh, having to fulfill. And yeah, you know, as I've gotten older, I've identified personally less and less, I guess, as just like overtly um, a young woman. I don't know how I think of myself, but um, in terms of my writing, uh, I am, I I guess, kind of interested in the ways in which um, categories get foisted on people and um, people are asked to kind of distill and fit neatly into um, particular boxes and and fulfill particular expectations because I think it's it's really cruel <laughs> um, and I think uh, most people, regardless of however they identify, have experiences um, with that kind of chafing of one kind or another um, that I experience and did experience anyway. So yeah, I mean, right now I'm working on a longer book length project about um, old people, <laughs> basically, um, and oldness as a category. Um, the more I think about it, the more I read about it, the more I interact with and interview older people in this country, um, the more I see this category as being um, really meaningless in a lot of ways. And then also like very, very meaningful. Um, it's a category, like a lot of categories that gets um, defined by people who are not in the in-group themselves. They're on the outside of it. And oldness as a category at this point in the US weirdly stretches from like 65 when you can sign up for Medicare uh, or Social Security, if you're not already on it, um, to, you know, 104, whenever it is that you may expire. So it's like this more than 30 year long identity category that has all sorts of variations inside of it, depending on all sorts of different experiences and things and other identity categories it makes no sense to me. Um, and maybe, you know, on the inside of oldness, I might find it a little bit more comprehensible, but I'm 35 uh, now and I'm I'm thinking about it um, as this really complex, again, both kind of like meaningless and also very important bureaucratically, uh, politically, all sorts of ways to um, kind of the ways in which the U.S., um, and our various systems kind of operate. Yeah. I hope that answers your question. That was all over the place, but. Oh, no, brilliantly. Thank you. You've got me thinking. Uh, now that I realize I can get Social Security and Medicare, <laughs> I'm moving back to the U.S. Well, I, I'm i not sure how the system works in, you're in Spain, right? I imagine it might be, um, there might be some different options for you there that uh, fulfill uh, your needs. No. I'm without papers here. Oh, got it. Okay. Got it. Well, it's not like this is a podcast going out into the larger world or anything. Where, uh, well, mystic. you know, with uh, search engine optimization, who knows? Yeah. So, Rob, I, I wanted to finish by inviting you to add or subtract anything to the things we've talked about or add topics that we haven't touched on that you'd like to address oh okay I forgot that we were doing this already so I I'm underprepared um in this moment but let me think um some people have answered that by saying no I'm happy with what we've said and then at the moment they've said that they've realized they're not mm, 
come up with a further answer. <laughs> if, if you'd like a prompt. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I think um, I think I'm I'm happy. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I mean, the only things that come to mind are like books that I'm reading and absolutely mm. uh, adoring. But other than that, please no. do please tell us. Okay. Yeah, a few books. Um, so I'm reading. Um, I don't know if you've read any Robert McFarlane work, yes. but he, yeah. So I'm reading The Old Ways by him right now, which is about paths and path making and walking and um, old roots um, across the land, which has a lot in common with digression um, in all sorts of ways. But yeah, walking and writing, uh, as he says, are kind of historically intertwined. Um and I'm reading, I think I mentioned Teju Cole earlier. I'm reading um, his latest book, which is called Tremor. And uh, The New Yorker, which we were talking about earlier, called it, I think, like, particularly, I said it's basically a book of essays in disguise, or it's it's essayistic disguised as fiction. And that's kind of my favorite type of writing, honestly, is um, stuff that feels like it has a lot of the impulses of nonfiction. So that feeling of the mind on the page, long passages of just essaying basically inside of um, kind of a fictional narrative. So, I mean, you could even say, and many people have said this actually, that Moby Dick does does similar stuff where it's like, clearly this is a fictional voyage in some ways, though um, heavily influenced by Melville's own experiences out on the sea. But, you know, there's like 17 pages of just writing about like not making and uh, <laughs> uh, whales and uh, blubber and stuff. So, yeah, that's kind of my favorite stuff to read. And I think Teju Cole, his book Tremor is really in that vein, though much slimmer than Moby Dick. Um, and yeah, those are the the two that I'm really enjoying right now. Right. No, actually, funnily enough, that was a question I meant to ask and forgot. Oh, so- great. You've made an, a happy man old? <laughs> I hope not. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to correct it, but uh, I like that. I like that. Is it a spoonerism where you switch, switch, uh, like if you switch an old man happy to a happy yeah, man? Or does that have to happen within one word? I think I mean, you're right. Two, two that words. Would, but, but Yeah. Yes. Anyway, whatever it is, it's a good. The other one I like from years ago is, Weather is here, wish you were lovely, which people oh. used to write on postcards. I love that. <laughs> really fun also. Yeah, they're the two I like. You've made a happy man old and weather is here, wish you were lovely. Uh, I should say that I learned these expressions from a guy who became an armaments journalist. So what are you going to do? An armaments journalist? Yes. You know, happily what? tracking sales of munitions around the globe. What is like the, um, do you happen to know like the leading armaments publication that this person might have been writing for? I'm just curious, like. Well, I don't think it's the well-known U.S. guns and ammo. Yeah, right. (laughs) I think it was probably connected to Jane's. Uh, Jane's Mm -hmm. is both an annual book brought out about the state of munitions around the globe and also a service, a bit like Reuters on finance or Bloomberg on finance. It gives us all updates on how people can be killed. 
So on that happy note, uh, Prof. Schiller, thank you very much for being so generous with your time and your thoughts. And I can say to people that I've been able to read some of your work. So I think I got one New Yorker piece because it wasn't behind the paywall. (laughs) And the others I've read mostly are not. Uh, I think I got one Columbia Journalism Review piece because it wasn't behind a paywall or maybe two. But for those who work in places that have access to these things or or do not, have a look. And um, it's just been wonderful to learn so much from talking to you. And I heartily recommend your work to others. And I'm very envious, as will be our listeners, uh, of your students who will get both much digression and also productive uncertainty in the semester to come. Thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure to speak with you as well and a real honor. So um, I hope I didn't digress all over the place uh, to the point of unintelligibility, but um, I appreciated your questions and your steering. And um, I don't think I've ever really gotten to speak at this length about my work before. So it was helpful to me as well. Thanks.